Hello everyone and welcome to The Lens. I'm Harjot Singh. The Lens is a business in the community podcast. It creates open and unscripted conversations between current and future leaders to challenge the way we all think about responsible business and help shape a fairer, better society for everyone. The Lens is produced in partnership with McCann and One Young World, a global organization that highlights future leaders around the world. Business in the community is the Prince's Responsible Business Network. Together, we convene a unique network of purposeful leaders to share insight, expertise, and create innovative programs that deliver impact. Together, our ambition is to make the UK the world leader at responsible business. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the importance and urgency of innovating at every level to sustain and repair our planet. What does a sustainable future look like? How can we get there? And what role can businesses play in architecting and securing this future and help us all get there? Today, we will look at these topics through the lens with two amazing and inspiring guests. First, we have Peter Mather, Chairman, BP Europe and UK. Peter is accountable for the governance, reputation and integration of all of British Petroleum's European activities and has worked in many roles in the energy, power, shipping and trading sectors in London, New York, Paris and Brussels. Peter also sits on the board of Fuels Europe ICC UK is an honorary director of the Royal Opera House, sits on the British Museum's Chairman's Advisory Group, the CBI's President's Committee, and is a director of the BP Pension Fund. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We're so glad to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Our second guest today is International Energy Award winner and One Young World Ambassador, Aya Alfawaris. Based in Leeds, Aya is an energy policy manager for a power transformers manufacturer decarbonizing the distribution sector. Before Leeds, Aya played a major role in defining and growing the renewable energy sector in Jordan, where she worked with communities and civil society organizations to realize the importance of shifting to renewable energy. Aya, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you. Likewise, happy to be here. Peter, let's start with you. You've been involved with BITC for quite a long time now. What's it been like and what would you say you've accomplished as a result of this relationship? BP was one of the founding partners of business in the community. And I think it's all in the title. Business needs to be in the community. Often businesses are somehow feel cut off or they don't feel the need to be part of that community. And sometimes communities don't really engage with the businesses that are located in their vicinity. So if you can actually get business and the community to work together, which I've always seen as the overarching purpose of, of BITC, then, then obviously um, you're going to create better business and you're going to create a, a better outlook for the communities that are close to those businesses. Personally, I've been involved in, in a number of different strands. Has BP been involved in the uh, sort of social enterprise activities of BITC and in particular, the art program, which I was very involved with, which is very exciting 
uh, local startups, social enterprise activities in more deprived parts of the country, helping to get them go. And that was a very rewarding piece of, of work. Also being involved with the educational side, again, focused on very much on the sort of the interface between business and students, young students in schools in particular, often in schools where you know, a business career possibly is seen as something that is not for them. And then at the moment, I'm very involved with the Climate Action Leadership Team on the climate response, uh, COP26, and what the UK can do to be a leader in the net zero challenge that, you know, that the world has. Thank you so much for that. It's remarkable how many things you do, Peter. It's just amazing to read your CV. I'm the chairman of our, of our UK and our European yes. activities. Well, big organisations like BP need some form of joining the dots or, or coordinating, being coherent, um, making sure that the left hand knows what the right hand's doing. Now, that's a gross sort of simplification of, of what I do, but there is a strong element of pulling together the different activities in a piece of geography, just making sure that we're consistent, that we show up consistently. We work with our central teams to deploy what we think is the right thing to do in a regional or a national basis, and also to ensure that um, you know we're joined up as far as governments are concerned, as far as our communications activities are concerned, our governance is concerned. It's a fascinating role and, and very much uh, an integrator, and I am very, very lucky to be in an industry that I find fascinating, and an industry which, frankly, right now is as relevant, if not more so, than it ever has been. When you just talk to us about all the things that you do and what that kind of a position entails, one can't help but you know reflect on the fact that so much of it amounts to working with so many diverse stakeholders and people and on so many complex issues. What would you say are some of the key human and leadership traits that you've developed that bode well for you um, as you do this? Well, I think it's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in BP terms in that I've worked across many different parts of the company. So uh, I'm sort of dangerous enough to know a little bit about most parts of BP. And I think being able to, if you like, understand elements of, of what my colleagues are, are grappling with is, is, is really helpful. I, I think, I, I hope, and I, I know this is the philosophy in our company. I hope that um, that we come over as a as a humble organisation. I certainly feel that you know we're we're very privileged in BP in many ways, and and therefore we we you know we try and adopt you know a, a humble and inclusive uh, approach to to our day to day business. I think one's got to be very careful in large companies not to sort of assume that everybody thinks you're you're right, or, or or to assume that everybody loves you. And I think the last couple of years have taught me a lot because I think we have been, you know, scrutinized quite rightly for for our environmental credentials. And obviously as an oil and gas company, that is a challenge and, and has been a challenge. What I'm so excited about now is the the new strategy that we've that we've embarked upon. So you know we are now talking about reducing our production of oil and gas by 40% by 2030. Now that's extraordinary, isn't it? That's, a, that's yeah. in many ways our sort of previous core product. It's like Coca-Cola saying they're going to produce 40% less Coca-Cola. 
you'd think they were a bit a bit nutty, but um, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to replace those those income streams with uh, more investment in renewable energy and different types of things. So, I mean, all credit to to my boss Bernard Looney because he he saw very clearly that the company needed to to change direction. So, so I think flexibility of thinking, I think humility, I think uh, patience as well. I mean, we're not going to deliver everything we need to do overnight. Many would like us to. Some would like us to go more slowly, but we've got to get the pace right. Very, very valuable human characteristics that I believe create amazing leaders, humility, patience, flexibility. And these are key to uh, running business successfully and responsibly, most importantly. So I just want to stay a little bit longer on this idea about, you know, leadership style and human and leadership values. So much of what we do is a result of our experiences, wouldn't you say? Our choices and our experiences pretty much shape our beliefs as human beings. The question I wanted to dwell on with you is, how has life and how have your life experiences over the past years shaped your leadership style? What were some of those seminal events and anecdotes and choices that you would say have defined and shaped your style? Gosh, okay, no, that's a that's a fascinating, fascinating question. Yes, I mean, I'm I'm an unusual animal these days because I have worked for effectively one one company all, all my working career, um, and I, I think I am one of the last of a of a dying breed. Even though a lot of people actually in the in large companies that have done the same thing, but uh, it's getting less and less common. But I have been lucky enough, as you say, to. to to live and work in different countries, to to work in very different types of jobs, and I think for BP I'm unusual because I have a, a, a an arts and humanities background, I'm particularly sort of modern languages. So uh, I've used them a lot in my career, and they've taken me around around different places. I think actually wherever you are in business, cultural sensitivity is so is so important. We're very much BP. When I first joined, it, it felt like a British company. Now it feels yeah. much more international with strong roots in the UK. Any career, you have to make choices along the way. And whether you're within a big company or jumping from company to company, I've certainly taken some decisions in my career where I've moved, said, look, actually, that area really interests me. And I'm prepared to sort of move laterally or to to, to sort of uh, seek out that uh, a job in that organization. I've, I've done that a uh, a, a number of times. I think you've also got to keep your perspective. And there've been a couple of times where I very much put my, you know, my family ahead of my career, where the easiest thing would have been to take that promotion and, and, and actually go and live somewhere. But that could have been very disruptive to to my family. And I, I always say to people that, you know, you're not you're not going to enjoy your career unless you can, you know, fit it in comfortably and enjoyably with your your, your personal life. So I think it's knowing yourself, knowing, you know, what's important to you, knowing how you want to get that work-life, work-home balance right, knowing, you know, what what do you want for your if if you have a family, if, uh, you know, what what do you what what do you want for your family, you know, what sort of friendships do you want to keep? It's got to be taken in the round. I think it's got to be viewed from a 360 degree sort of perspective. That's hopefully what I've tried to do. Um, in the, obviously, any business career has its highs and 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 and, it, and its lows. And uh, I mean, I just feel very fortunate that I've been in a fascinating industry 
in a company that's had its challenges. I mean, we've had some very difficult mm. times in BP. For sure. Uh, I've been very involved with, but you know, you learn from those. I think what you're saying is um, to have the long view and, you know, just think about how things add up and what they're adding up to and what do you want out of life? How do you define success, accomplishment, happiness for yourself and then basically navigate your choices? Don't get yourself into into jobs or into roles or into companies where, where you just do not enjoy the culture, whether it's a part of a company or a company itself, investing that time in understanding what is the culture that I'm going to come across in that role. You've got to assess, can can you change the culture? You might be able to. You might be able to be a trailblazer. I've worked in some areas where the culture was to work you know, all hours of the day and night. Maybe you can be the first person that says, actually, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that and, and, and show how productive you can be working in a different way. But if you really feel that, that the culture is not for changing, then yes, you should probably start managing your exit to another role. Let's come back to BP for a second. We've all been reading and we've all lived long enough to see that BP witnessed and enabled equally so much transformation as it relates to energy and how we harness it and use it and on so many levels. What would you say are some of the key transformations that you have noticed and enabled? Well, it's early days. We came out with a really radical strategy, which is where we we actually coined this phrase turning from an IOC, an international oil company, to an IEC, an integrated energy company, with the emphasis on the words integrated and energy. But the integrated is important because we think that to get the solutions the planet needs to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner, we're going to have to look at energy systems in a much more integrated way. We're going to have to look at everything in a more integrated way, not just sort of individual sort of silos. If you're going to make green hydrogen, then you need to have green electricity, because it is very electricity intensive. So therefore, that brings in sort of offshore wind or, or, or other forms of electricity. And then what are you going to do with the green hydrogen? So immediately, you can start seeing that you've got an integrated system rather than just, you know, uh, an, an oil value chain or, or a gas value chain. So I think, you know, it's early to say, but we, we are, we've changed our organization to reflect our new strategies. So the easy thing would have been just to keep the old organization and, and, and just put a nice new packaging on it. No, I think Bernard was, was clear that if we're going to deliver on this strategy, we've got to really change. And there's got to be no turning back. We have radically reorganized the company, a company that used to be talked about in terms of upstream and downstream. We don't use those terms anymore. We talk about markets and customers and low carbon energy and production and operations and and terms that, that capture the totality of what we're doing. So I think I think if you're if you're going to have a bold strategy, you've got to follow it right the way through. You've got to have no ability to turn back. You've got to change your organisation. You've got to put the right people in place and select the right people to sort of to take you there. And that includes bringing in a lot of people from outside. We've brought in some lots of amazing talent from from outside BP, but. You know, it feels it feels like a very different company. The thing I'll always come back to, Arjun, is that the values are the same. That's where it should should sort of start and finish with, with your values. If any company going through the radical change we're going through could, if it's not careful, compromise on values. We won't do that, and uh, and I think it's an absolutely core ingredient for success not to compromise on values. What are 
the BP values that the organization remains anchored in as it navigates and really leads this change? We have a set of values that have been good for us for quite a long time now, well, well, well before mm. this uh, transition. And, and they're five very simple values. Safety's got to be number one. We want our employees, our customers, our contractors to, to, you know, to return home in the evening in the same state they were in the morning. Safety is, is core to what, you know, to what we do. Then there's respect, and respect comes in all kinds of different shapes and forms. That can be respect in, you know, for, for your colleague, but it can also be respect for your community. Obviously, respect for uh, for governments, um, etc. Excellence. We do, you know, we do aspire to either have excellence within our own company, or at least have access to excellence. We have a responsibility to to do whatever we do in an excellent way. Uh, courage allowing people, giving them permission to speak up internally so people can have the courage to say, hey, that's just not right. You know, you're not doing that in the right way or I'm being discriminated against, whatever it is, just giving people a sense of courage. The final one, Arjun, is, is one team. That's very, very important in a place like BP. And it's difficult because, you know, in a big company, you often get these silos and everybody, you know, thinks they, they're master of their particular entity but actually a lot of a lot of it is creating a sense of one team around the company that actually you're all you're all kind of working towards the same thing and again i think our new strategy has has made that easier because we have a a very very clear direction which is to be a net zero company by 2050 or sooner and to transform ourselves from an ioc to an integrated energy company right and and these values are critical to achieving that mission. They have to be seen as an operating system rather than just words on a page because if values are an operating system, they would inform, control and manage everything we would do or we should do. Would you say that's correct then? Absolutely. Values need to be kind of organic. They need to be living. They, they need to be deeply rooted in, in all your behaviors, in all your ways of approaching the business, all your operating systems. And they mustn't just be abstract concepts. They've got to kind of be adaptable as well so that people can, you know, can really feel what's important to their bit of the organization, but be aware of the totality of what people are doing. Thank you so much. Aya, let's come to you now. Tell us a little bit about One Young World, your role in it, what drew you to it, and what's the impact that experience has had on your life. Thank you. Very interesting conversation. I've been taking a lot of kind of uh, notes and ideas um, from Peter as well. I'm from Jordan and um, grew up there all my life. Um, did a, an engineering degree, degree. It was computer slash electrical engineering. Um, that's when uh, I got introduced to One Young World and I attended their first um, conference back in 2010 in London. Um, and that was like a, kind of a huge eye-opening for me because coming from like a, a third world country um, and a small city in, in that country and everything there kind of, if, if you listen to the news or read newspapers, it's all about politics over there because, you know, the situation is not, it's not that great. Um, it was kind of interesting to come out of that and, you know, kind of my bubble got burst that there are you know, other problems in the world. And one of them was the the kind of um, 
environmental problems. And that's kind of when I started hearing more about food poverty and electricity poverty, etc. So since then, I became very involved with One Young World. And we started a few projects between me and other One Young World ambassadors. One of these was uh, something called Wake Up Call. We started it back in 2011, 2012. And it was kind of to send a message to one leader uh, or public figure in your country, asking them to change one thing. So it was as simple as that. I did some research and I decided that what I wanted to focus on was energy because Jordan at the time imported uh, 98% of its energy. And to me, that, like that number just baffled me as in no country can be sustainable by importing, you know, the majority, almost almost 100% of its energy. So I was like, you know, we have 330 days of sunshine there why don't we have solar energy? And it turns out that we didn't have kind of the laws and regulations for that to enable people to actually install these systems like solar photovoltaics and, and connect them to the grid. So that was kind of my focus. And then when I left uni, I decided not to work in, you know, as a, as a computer engineer, but to work in the energy sector. And that's kind of when I started working with solar energy in Jordan and helped me sort of, you know, that kind of global outlook on, on the environmental problems, but taking it from a very local perspective was very important to kind of get momentum and make people listen to you and actually kind of implement change where, where you can. I've stayed in the energy sector because I've got so much experience in it and it's it's my passion as well. It's a vital sector and um, it's responsible for one third of the global greenhouse gas emissions. So it was important to focus on this sector and try and kind of change it from within and change different roles in different countries. And now in Leeds with uh, Wilson Power Solutions, we manufacture transformers, but we manufacture the most energy efficient transformers in the UK. It was another interesting thing to know about the UK is that the average age of the uh, of a distribution transformer is 63 years old. Um, this is this is a device that's used for all electricity connections throughout the country and throughout the world. And if they're designed to last for 30 years, but people use them for 60, 70, 80 years, you're talking about a very inefficient piece of equipment that you have on your site, and it's wasting energy all the time because they waste energy whether there's load or no load. So it's it's kind of it was interesting to tackle that and try and change it as well and see you know what what could be done if we replace these transformers or if we address the design of them and make them more more energy efficient. And clearly, before coming to Leeds, you made a major impact in Jordan. How do you think that that work prepared you for the work you're doing here in the UK? To be honest, it was it was a sort of like a cultural shock from a professional point of view, because mm -hmm. in Jordan, it was a new, it was like an emerging sector. So everyone wanted to listen to what you have to say, because it's, it's new and it's a hot topic and people want to be part of it. And I was very young at that point, And as a female to sit on a table in the Ministry of, of Energy and Mineral Resources uh, and, and have my voice being heard, that kind of gave me the confidence and the opportunity to actually think that, you know, what, what I have to say actually matters from a youth point of view as well, because we see nowadays that, you know, the climate strike and the youth strike on climate and, and all these kind of marches, they're being driven by youth because the future belongs to the younger generation and, and we want things to be done differently. I carried it with me when I, when I came to the UK. Another really major thing to me was knowledge. 
as Peter said, uh, that you know you don't just say, oh, we want green hydrogen. You need to think about what electricity you're going to use to actually operate that. That is another major thing that I keep mentioning is like people need to be aware of the details about sustainability or energy or any new technology, really, because some people say, oh, I'm just going to drive a, an electric vehicle and it will be good for the environment. But at the same time, you need to think about what electricity are you using to power that EV car because the carbon intensity of it and if you're using solar renewable energy to charge it then that's great but electricity with high carbon intensity where the carbon footprint is high then you're not doing much good. What would you say if you were to reflect on your life and if I were to ask you a simple question what would you say has led you to this kind of calling? Something must reside quite deeply in your set of experiences and in your beliefs that drew you to this kind of a calling. What was that? I often think about that when I attended my first winning world and there were like these, you know, big terms I heard. And as a not a native English speaker, I started translating them. And when I started reading more and more about sustainability, if you read things about, for example, you know, not just renewable, but like recycling, upcycling, uh, grey water, all these different things that you can do to save the planet. It made me kind of reflect on, on my upbringing. My grandma, when she washes the dishes, she always used to have a bucket under the tap. And depending on the water that she has, she'd like use it to water the plants. As a kid, I always thought that that's a hassle. Why would you even do that? Same thing about like, you know, in Jordan, because electricity is expensive, for example. Our parents made sure mm. that we turn off the lights when you leave the room. My dad had the thing about not just throwing away things, but... He was a very busy man, but when he had time, he'd like upcycle and recycle things. And I always thought that was just a hobby. It's not really important. We did it out of need. It's a third world country and resources matter a lot to people. That made me realize that, you know what, those older generations, techniques and cultures are actually good for the environment. And we should carry this along with us. How can people get started on their own net zero journey? What would your single piece of advice be to people who want to start on their own net zero journey? What's the one thing they can start doing? I would say think of everything that you do in normal life, everything that you consume as a contributor to climate change. That's when you start realizing that every little and every big thing you do actually affects the environment. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently as well has been how a lot of people have the illusion of action. Just because you choose like a certain diet or a certain, um, I don't know, you recycle or something, you think that you've done it and you know, you're, you're there. But no, it's everything that we do in life contributes. And really being aware of what we do kind of in terms of the science behind it, because that gives you a lot of insights, trying to you know, listen to podcasts, watch, watch sort, of, sort of like videos on YouTube, read articles. There's a wealth of information out there that mm. makes it easier for people to, to make these choices that could help save the environment. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was reading about you, I, I, of course, I did a little bit of research, but I was particularly uh, struck by how, you know, you reframe the conversation around carbon in such an interesting and compelling way. I liked it. Okay, if I were to ask you, for our listeners, what is the one thing we should all know about the social cost of carbon? What do you mean by that when you talk about the social cost of carbon? 
Oh, the social cost of carbon. That's that's a that's a very big problem. It's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, there isn't a definitive right. sort of uh, answer to it, and there's no right or wrong. There's good and bad, but there's no right and wrong, and that makes makes it kind of a bit ambiguous to a lot of people, and makes it easier for some corporations to do sort of greenwashing and say, "Oh, we're doing this, we're doing that." But I'm very right. happy to know that that, for example, what what um, Peter has said about how they're actually transforming the, the business from within to 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 reflect actual change. And the social part of it is very important. You cannot separate between environmentalism and sustainability and so social aspect of it. It's all integrated. And we are paying attention to climate change and to sustainability because of people and because of the survival of humanity, really. It's fascinating how, you know, we don't link them intuitively and naturally in the way you have. And this is important for people to hear. So one year of lockdown, you know, as we, we're all in the UK and we're coming out of lockdown gradually, uh, one year of lockdown, do you think we have lived more sustainably? Did you during lockdown? Definitely. Just thinking about the commute to the office every day and back, lockdown came and kind of changed our perception about it. We're actually, as a business, we're more productive working from home and we've managed to grow the sales by 20% this year. And that's just like mind boggling because it is important to see people face to face every now and then, but is it important on day to day basis? But then after doing some research and like reflecting, I recognized that connecting with nature was a big thing for me. And that made me make a decision to want to live away from the city centre just because I want to be closer to nature. It defines me. It's part of who I am. How do you feel tomorrow's leaders will be different from the ones that we have today? It's easy to judge the younger generation saying that they pay attention to different things. But then when you actually look at how they use these tools a lot of the time to actually raise awareness about social and environmental problems, it's amazing and it's actually promising. And it makes me feel a bit positive that, you know, my generation is more aware than the one before us. And, and at one Young World Conference, we, we once had Kofi Annan saying that his generation has failed us. That's kind of true because they had different needs and, like, you know, they were more worried about going out of war and making things accessible and affordable for people. It's the energy trilemma. You need to make energy available and accessible and, and secure and all these things. And then we started hearing about climate change and the science came out saying that everything that we've been doing has been harming the environment. And that's now my generation's focus is like, how can we redefine everything that has been designed previously in a way that does not harm the environment, but actually makes us integrate with the ecosystems around us and, you know, places us as part of it, not as superior or on top of it. I'm positive that the, you know, the younger generation will pay more attention to that. Peter, would you agree? What would you say are, if I were to ask you, what are the biggest opportunities in your mind for tomorrow's leaders to lead responsible business and drive change? Well, I mean, can I just say it's been absolutely fascinating listening to, to Aya, and it makes me realize that, um, you know, I think the future of the planet is in, is in good hands. Um, right. I, hope are, I hope there are many others like you, Aya, because I think you... you Thank I, you. I, I've just been sitting here virtually, well, nodding furiously at everything everything that you say. I think the business opportunities, the social opportunities are absolutely enormous because, you know, getting climate change under control is the biggest challenge that, that the world has against a backdrop of increasing population, uh, greater prosperity, more aspiration, you know. And I think the opportunities for innovation, the opportunities for not only kind of clever 
sort of technical solutions, but also behavioral. How are we going to get consumers to buy into a lot of this stuff? How are we going to get consumers to, to make those choices that, that are going to help the planet? So there are lots of marketing challenges, all kinds of, I mean, it, it's, it's a very exciting time. I'm, I'm rather jealous, actually, that I'm sort of towards the back end of my career. And, uh, and, and, uh, but I'm heartened, as I say, that we have people like Aya who are at the front end of their careers. And it's great, very heartening. Let's just look back for a quick second on the year we've had. What would you say is the most surprising thing this year has taught you about business, but more importantly, also about yourself? Who would like to start first? Aya, let's start with you. What's the most surprising things this year has taught you about yourself? Probably how important my uh, life-work balance is. Coming from the third world country, always had to work an extra mile to actually achieve something because you don't have as many opportunities as, as other people. So I've always worked hard and, you know, weekends, and I didn't mind that at all. Whereas at home, living in a small apartment and having to separate between, you know, once I finish work at five, that's it. That, that should be it. And, you know, apart from exceptions, obviously, every now and then, but like how to separate between that and kind of keep my mental health and, and physical health at the same time well while doing work properly. It's, it's, it, was, it was interesting to see, you know, that I could manage to do that. I saw that, you know, there's no limits to what human capacity can do to actually cope with something. That's fascinating, really. Peter, what about you? What has this year taught you about yourself and about work? Well, I think it's been an extraordinary year. I've been very surprised by how businesses have adapted to to a virtual world. I'm surprised how well, on the whole, the technology has worked. Surprised by how we've all become so paperless, but maybe just learned to uh, remind myself of how appreciative I am of of you know those immediately around me, uh, immediate family, and and also um, you know I have missed certain people during lockdown. Uh, it makes you realise that. You know, in social interaction, your friends, your wider family are, are just so important. So lots of learnings. I wouldn't want anybody to have to go through what the world's going through again, but we have to sort of take some positives out of it. And I'm sure in terms of business, there should be some positives going forward. That was such a thoughtful and insightful response, both of you. And thank you both so much, because I think this whole conversation has been deeply um, thoughtful. So thank you both very much for joining us today. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you both on the program. And we've really enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to The Lens. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World and McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. So thank you. Also, you can find us, follow us and interact with us on Instagram at The Lens Podcast, on Twitter at BITC, on Facebook, on LinkedIn and in the Business in the Community website. I'm Harjot Singh. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.